0: All right, James, it's good to have you, boy. Welcome, everybody, to Faith, Family, and Friends. And we have uh, uh, award-winning documentarian, James Tang, with us tonight, who is, uh, uh, sure, a couple, three years ago, he uh, co-produced a film entitled Ghost Mountain, which chronicles uh, his dad's um, experience in Cambodia and what uh, some have called the second killing fields and what I like to do is play. If I could split the screen here and play the trailer, if uh, folks haven't seen it, so I'm gonna split the screen and just i got too many other things up here, so let me just this okay. We'll play this trailer and uh, hopefully, you all can see this and hear it. Everyone in Cambodia you know? has a horror story. We tried very hard to save them. We failed. Uh, 40,000 or so, I think, were pushed back. The Khmer Rouge killed 25% of the country. There isn't a family in Cambodia who wasn't affected. And it, it, it didn't end when the Vietnamese came in.
1: I knew my father until one day I asked him about his former life in Cambodia and what he said shocked me. It's very really difficult to walk through here. This story documents my father's experiences at that time.
2: Thousands of refugees passed through here. 13,000
0: <laughs> lost their life. The way most refugee crises go, and this is true to this day, is the world doesn't pay much attention to them until they're already sort of out of control. Nobody wanted to be a refugee. It's not the toy that they want to be a refugee. We should never forget that every refugee crisis is a political
1: failure, because that's essentially what war and conflict is. This film is a collection of voices of those who were instrumental in saving lives. The of this.
2: realized at the time how dangerous it all was. 99% of the Americans just wanted to forget about this. None of us foreseeing
0: that it would be kind of brutal forced repatriation and actually in My name is Paul St. Tang. this is my story.
1: Going this way here is where all the landmines are and that's headed towards Cambodia. We hope this story honors those who lost their lives in the tragedy of the killing fields. If
2: our story is told and remembered, I think that it's as important as punishing the my religion.
0: The story needs to be told
2: And not to be forget forever.
0: Oh, very powerful! My wife and I—I think I emailed, or mentioned to you on the phone, Uh, James. We're very moved. Uh, I'm not sure if the word is inspired by watching that film. Can you just give us, before I ask some of the questions I sent you, uh, just a little real brief a historical background, why this was called Killing Fields? Is it sort of like a postscript in terms of the uh, uh, the shaky government that was put in and what happened after the first Killing Fields with the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot? Maybe you could kind of summarize that real briefly so that, because we be have a lot of people that maybe don't have an idea, they're young, maybe they're watching and their understanding of history in that part of the world, that part of our, our world's history is maybe a little bit uh, slim.
1: Yeah, I. that's one of the things that we're trying to do with this film is correct for the lack of knowledge amongst the younger generation about the killing kids itself. Much of the older generation, particularly baby boomers, mm-hmm. were able to read about this in the New York Times back then. Um, and it was one of because it was such a good case that discredited communism in Cambodia, right? For for, really, as one of the worst experiments in the 21st century. Um, The the term killing field came from this genocide that took place in Cambodia, where a bunch of radical leaders, Pol Pot being the number one of them, um, were the most fervently Marxist and Maoist And they sought to place Cambodia in the most purest form of communism that really the world has never seen. And they felt very confident they were going to achieve that Mm -hmm. and ended in a terrible genocide um, because eventually corruption leaked through very quickly. And what happened was people became very fearful within the government and Pol Pot's own insiders would kill each other, backstab each other. And it led to approximately um, two million out of a population of six to be mass murdered um, for various reasons, from starvation, death, illness and murder itself. And so uh, Dith Pran was a reporter who coined the term killing fields because the way you were executed was that they took you, your family, um, and brought them to the, out into the fields and executed your whole family there. And they primarily at the beginning did that towards people who they saw as very anti-communist, mm-hmm. people who were merchants, who were lawyers, who represented modernity, mm-hmm. uh, doctors, uh, teachers, uh, just everybody of this society in the urban areas. Mm-hmm. And you were particularly uh, vulnerable if you wore glasses. If you wore glasses, you were one of the first who were executed.
0: Can I ask because why? Because you That's were seen. Kind of strange, I mean, it's it's all strange and odd and evil and wicked, but it, it almost seems we glasses. So what was yeah. the, their rationale?
1: You were somebody who was, had the money and was okay. educated, right? And well, spent well. time in in the books. Yeah. Um, and so they saw you as somebody that they wanted to get rid of the vermin of the old society. And they wanted to create a new society um, which harkened back to the glory days of Cambodia, a mm. great Indian Korean kingdom that went back to agriculture. So they forced people into these labor camps mm. and made them work. And that's where most people did die. So mm. um, in some ways, like why um, it was both like revenge of people in the rural areas going against the urban areas is partially a whole entire um, infection of the ideas of communism that took over and grips asia and cambodia particularly who is one of the um, few countries that took it to such extremes Um, and cambodia was admired at the time by many academics who were pro communists as being yeah this is going to be the realized form of you know marxism and it turned out to be a disaster Mm -hmm. Um, for our film we call it the second killing fields because this is not the killing field story is only a small foundational beginning of -hmm. what happens afterwards Um, because there is an untold story of of a crisis a refugee crisis that unfolds at the end of the fall of the Khmer Rouge and at the end of the killing fields.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it was one of the biggest humanitarian crises, but it just has never got the attention it really deserves, mm-hmm. where millions and millions of people fled the regime, mm-hmm. uh, the new regime that was taking over Cambodia, mm-hmm. and crossed into Cambodia. And it led to such disaster. Um, and many people would call it as what they had gone through in the aftermath of this, Mm -hmm. what we call um, the second killing fields, was so much worse, even a few days there, was way worse than the killing fields itself, which Mm -hmm. was three and a half years long, which is by far considered one of the worst genocides in history. They even dubbed it being the second Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And to say that what we went through in the aftermath was way worse, it was just a story I really had to capture
0: um, here. So we know that nature abhors a vacuum. So the next regime that came in to displace Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, uh, are you saying that it was way worse because they were, were they necessarily communists? Can you uh, describe briefly? Now you're you're diving on?
1: into it. Yeah, a lot more of the history here. Yeah. Um, the regime that took over afterwards was the Vietnamese, um, who out of compassion actually, were I think out of good goodwill took over the country and liberated it from the Khmer Rouge um some might say being apologists for the Vietnamese that they deserve a Nobel Peace Prize because they had kind of um brought kind of a stability to the region Mm -hmm. but what ended up happening was a lot of the people natives in Cambodia were just so darn fearful of this new regime this New military coming in because they had seen, um, they had already gone through their own turmoil of communism, Mm
2: -hmm. what they
1: saw as part one. And they were thinking, this is part two, and this is our sort of not all the time friendly neighbor who's now a communist, right? Mm -hmm. So they fear fearful for their lives and they all flee to the north. Um, A lot of refugees, Cambodians do Mm -hmm. into um, Thailand which Thailand, if you translate it, actually means free land, Thai land, right? Mm -hmm. Which is very interesting. So they saw that as being a stepping stone into finding a place of refuge to resettle elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, A place of new beginnings, a new life where they could turn uh, things around after this three and a half years of just brutal, brutal Mm -hmm. uh, struggle and oppression. Now, what happens is that Unfortunately, the Thais are seeing this as well. Um, and they become fearful because they've seen sort of a domino effect that's taken place. They've seen South Vietnam fall to communism, Laos fall to communism, Cambodia. And now their sworn enemy, Vietnam, is at their borders, right? Right at the borders. And they're scared. They're scared that these refugees are coming in are surrogate communists who are going in to destabilize the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sometimes this plays a little similarly to the border that we have with Mexico, where sometimes we do feel fearful with Mexicans coming in and sometimes them being terrorists as well. There was exactly that same fear mm-hmm. as well. Um, but the response of the Thai military particularly was just disproportionately um, unacceptable. And mm-hmm. what they did was even despite the fears, they took and routed up all these refugees. And they screamed and clamored for help from the international community um, to help aid with this. And they said, if you guys don't, this is what we're going to do with them. And they end up taking 40,000 refugees, my father being one of them, all the way through um, at night for many, many hours to a really undisclosed location at the top of a mountain and drop them off there. Mm. And they proceed to gun them down this mountain. Um, and the it was uh, out of a statement to say that don't come back to our this country. This is what will happen. This is the type of peril.
2: Mm.
1: Um, and they also want to raise the harm. Some of these renegade military mm. people that you know, internationally, if you guys don't take care of these refugees, right, mm-hmm. this is how we'll deal with the problem. Um, now, the location of this place, right, was probably the worst part of it, because it was eight eight hours away. They, If they had really just thought about taking these refugees kindly back, they would have done it half an hour back to the border where they had just come.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but instead, they decided to take them to this High, one of the highest peaks of Cambodia, at uh, a Thai-Cambodian border, and gunned them down. This and so, when men, women, children, and old people are repelling down these vines, these oh. thick vines, their bundles and hands of all their life possessions, scared to death and repelling down, um, and there's bullets whizzing past, and then suddenly they hear bombs going off out large blasts and they find that they're actually surrounded by a minefield as well um so that it was a trap and that was the most horrifying thing um was for people like my father to believe that they had found their dream in a refugee camp and were going to places like america or europe and then the next thing to know that dream is shattered and to end up at this horrifying place right of all places you could never unimaginably think of right
0: so it was the thai government because of the insecurity and fear that actually it was responsible for the second killing field.
1: yeah there were i would be a little more specific i would just put it on the thai military, military um instead of it seemed they seemed to work autonomously from the rest of the government who were working to some degree with the mm. state department ngos but this um this came from the hands of um the military itself wow
0: what they have
1: power they do have much power too over their governance too
0: what what inspired or compelled you to to tell your dad's story had he shared any of that growing up
1: no i i i like that question because i did not grow up really knowing the full breadth of why i just told you this story um I did know that my father was a survivor of the Killing Fields and that they were just remarkably different from any immigrant that came to this country. Mm -hmm. Uh, That sort of wore on me, but that came from them watching the old 1984 Mm -hmm. movie The Killing Fields and I walked in upon my parents watching it and my mother shrieking and screaming at what she's watching. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the sun pummeled earth mass bodies lying around and my father himself responding that that was not nothing, that he had gone through a lot more. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense, wow, they they survived this historical atrocity, and yet there's more as well, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But he would not tell me the depth of his story. I would overhear it over family conversations Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, so much. And the best I got was he'd use it in general terms to discipline me. You know, Mm -hmm. he asked me to finish my food at dinner, and... If I didn't, you'd always quit back. Like I would have killed for something like this. You don't know what it means to starve and survive um, hand to mouth. And so um, I never never got that chance until um, I personally went through a difficult saga of my own in high school where I had to go through a period of insomnia that developed. Um, And this is a big detour from kind of the story itself, but um I developed insomnia in high school, which was uh very debilitating. And so um it was at the same time I was senior doing varsity sports, I'd come home um very tired, beaten, and I'd still wouldn't be able to sleep. And this went went for days and weeks on end. Um and I nearly lost it. Um and then at one point I recall that in my sleeplessness in my terrible tiredness and restlessness right just pushed to the utter limits i began to see images of my father as a refugee and then i began to see images of the rest of the family as well surviving and for whatever reason this is superimposed in my in front of me in my the darkness of my room and that gave me so much peace um, cause I, I finally saw them as the true survivors that they were, mm-hmm. and I was able to tackle, you know, this sleeplessness this run be like, yeah, this is really, this is really hard, but my, my families are survivors and it's sort of ingrained in us. Yeah. Um, and that gave me just an incredible uplifting, um, mm-hmm and this immense courage and bonus to just believe I could get through this. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of I find out- a- like
0: It was almost like a, an example. And it sounds like a greater power the Lord perhaps uh, allowed you to almost see a vision of some sort. Yeah. Maybe not an open vision, but just the image of, of what he hadn't yet been able to describe to you um, and then help you to get through your difficulty.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it. it looking at hindsight, it was of like a vision, um, and I think weeks later, I would get a call that it had been a medication I was taking that I had overdosed on, prescribed by my doctor, following the instructions closely. Um, but that was the reason I was having insomnia, um, wow. and I broke through that. Um, so afterwards, like. I was just so sheerly compelled by this image, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: It just was like, I have to know more about this because I survived, they survived. I have to tell the story now because it helps me out and I wanted to help other people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part was uh, a few years later, I also took a trip um, as an exchange student to Singapore. Um, and this is more on a personal level that... Uh, it really, really moving me because uh, Singapore, you would know today as like one of the high grade economic engines of city states, you know, in Asia Mm -hmm. being free and trade and all of that. And it had been in the seventies, unlike Cambodia, like Cambodia back in its day in the seventies was an idol of like France. It was called the Pearl of the Orient. Um, Little Paris, it was very, very modern. Um, And it, you know, my people would grow up just like we had, and my father did as well, playing soccer, Mm -hmm. basketball, he went to movies, saw Western movies for America. Um, They had all the amenities of modern society, rock and roll. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And um, back in the 70s, Singapore was the opposite. It was a poor fishing island. And then today, 40 plus years later, it is like in a complete 180. Mm-hmm. And then Cambodia has the contrasting story where it went from the most modern society down to basically a third world country, mm-hmm. um, at least a few years ago. Yeah. So that, to go to Singapore and see that was just heartbreaking to me. Um, it it showed to me and helped me measure really the immense loss that Cambodia went through. Because yeah. If the killing fields never happened, I I'd, I'd strongly argue that we'd be talking about Cambodia as being one of the economic strong countries in Asia today. Oh, wow. for sure. Yeah, it was so far ahead of the rest so far ahead of Thailand, Vietnam,
2: mm-hmm.
1: China. And look, you have China today, which was nothing yeah. back in the 70s, too. Mm-hmm. Right. So
2: wow.
1: I'd make that case. And so I measure the loss of not what they lost in 70s, but what it has lost in perpetuity looking forward. Mm -hmm. as well and so that really um shakes me up and so I'm like I got, I have to tell this story because this is what war conflict and tragedy can do it can really set your country back generations it should be really
0: really compelled propelled you with the idea of of uncovering something a lot of people weren't aware of how difficult was it to convince your dad to come on board with the project
1: it was really hard because he was not apt to telling his children the story. Yeah. Uh, he comes from a strongly honor and shame culture, where um, so many Cambodians, when they come back from where when they came to the United States and settled and had children, they never tell the story their story to their children. Yeah. They just lock it up and say that was the past and move forward. And you don't you don't have moments of being vulnerable or bring open about your your emotional scars with your children just doesn't happen um and he he saw me as being someone who was raised up here with he says silver spoon in the mouth uh, yeah. and having all the everything the necessities of life and having everything he wanted at his hands um, he couldn't see a way where i would understand um what he had to prevail and overcome
2: mm-hmm.
1: those those deep struggles that he had to go through and pains um, mm-hmm. and so that was the biggest challenge was um, getting to getting him to recognize that I want to do this and that I can at least see a glimmer mm-hmm. right yeah. of his traumatic past
0: and isn't this uh, if I could just interject isn't this typical of those who've gone through uh, similar uh, experiences like the Holocaust other genocide when they move to another country whether it's the United States or another nation they want to totally forget what happened and have a new identity in fact i know that i've heard that some of the jews that came here after the holocaust changed their names that's how that's how difficult it was for them and so your father's experience sounds a bit similar to to theirs as well And that, yeah. that sense anyway yeah yeah
1: yep yeah, exactly yeah so um And I found that uh, as a hard answer to swallow because I just found this is an incredibly valuable story. And I would tell him, like, I think this story would make a difference in the world. People need to hear this. Mm -hmm. It's very important of the story. Um, And one of my favorite writers, speaking of the Holocaust, is Eli Wazell.
2: Um,
1: And he he wrote off his view was. I need to write about the Holocaust. I'm paraphrasing him because we just can't let these matters happen again. If I stay silent, these matters will, it's this cycle that will continue on and on. Um, he also brought up the fact that if to not tell the, these stories would allow these people who were murdered to be, suffer what, what he called, quote, quote unquote, a second death.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
1: Meaning, like, yeah, they died physically they 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 were murdered, tortured, gassed, uh, but not even mentioning your name again or not even um, trying to collect it in some sort of historical uh, footnote would mean that they d- die a collective uh, death they're erased from history mm-hmm. and the history the memory of the memory within society
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, so I came with that to my father and I was like, you know if you don't want to tell this story to me. It's not about me, and I would. I said to him, like, do it on behalf of all those who died, mm-hmm. because they don't have anybody to tell their story except yeah. you, and you're the only one who can mm-hmm. tell their story, um, and you, you're the only one who has the power to. Mm-hmm. And so that stuck with him, and he came back and, um, believe it or not, it was Resurrection Sunday, April. Wow. 2010 that he began to tell me a story. It was the weekend I got baptized or the before the weekend I got baptized. Oh, that's cool. Um, he actually began to tell me the story. That was many years ago over a decade ago. So, so
0: um, how did, from moving from that where he became comfortable talking to you personally about it and then uh, the film, the genesis of, of creating this documentary and actually taking him over there uh, when he hadn't been there before
1: had he in these particular areas we went to he had it was um first time cameras had gone in there first Mm -hmm. time he had been back in 40 years Mm -hmm. I scouted it just a few weeks before just to Mm -hmm. make sure things were okay but that was it um and so what you see if you're able to see the the documentary is really raw footage Mm -hmm. of my father just getting off the plane and being in front of um, and witnessing the remnants of his past, right? All those who were maimed and um, who didn't survive these awful, awful landmines out there, mm-hmm. and all the wreckage that's there, and that's all real, like yeah. m- immediate, raw, real, intimate footage there with my
0: father. How uh, how rewarding has it been for you to accomplish this? Uh, I imagine it took several years to put it together as far as. Uh, getting the funding, uh, what you may still be trying to do in terms of promoting it, so other people will be able to see it easier. Um, has it been rewarding to find that people are watching it, viewing it, maybe changing their mind or being inspired and encouraged? And, and has it reached uh, other Cambodians who have gone through similar circumstances?
1: Yeah. For um, what when I when I think back to this. Um, for me personally, it's, it's been great as a journey for me to hear my father tell this story to me and recollect it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me have the suspense of like, yes, yeah, it's true or not. Right. Mm-hmm. And to actually go to these regions when we actually went filming in Thailand and Cambodia to f- realize like everything he said was precisely true. The mm-hmm. way landmarks were the formations, everything and how the roads intersected. Um, clear as day as if he was living through that. And, um, even in, in the jungles, right. And for, it was like reliving through history for me or living through a history. It's Mm -hmm. sort of like for your audience, like learning about American history, right. Going back to Irby, Mm -hmm.
2: um,
1: American revolution and the signing of Declaration of Independence and the uh, formation of Congress and then penning it to paper and you being in front of it, right. Many Mm -hmm. years later and seeing Mm -hmm. that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just awesome. It's a thrill
2: mm-hmm.
1: for my, um, and it's been rewarding to interview all of these incredible people. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my first documentary, mm-hmm. uh, first film. I used to work in finance, so um, to have such a very good subject matter mm-hmm. and good subjects to uh, interview and record was was really the best. Um, people just being very open to telling their stories. Um, I also have to call out these NGO rescue workers and state-of-arm mm-hmm. workers. There's there so much credit, um, so much honor that really uh, our history doesn't do them any justice mm-hmm. at all for mm-hmm. the good that they did. And in, in what was in fact a losing war for America, um, yet we still were very compassionate, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Um, back then, um, which is, I, I think holds many lessons to the way we deal with our foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that to me was um, going back, revisiting the past, visiting these really real people mm-hmm. um, has left so much uh, impact on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as like for the impact on Cambodians and um, how it's been accepted, there, there's been a lot of people who have come back. Um, people who are like, second generation born here in America. And they said, you know, my parents went through this and they thank you for doing this type of film.
2: Um,
1: because this is, this is a story that wasn't heard of. And I've only heard it in bits from my family. I've never understood the full account until I watched your film. Uh, And so to hear that is really redeeming in some ways. And I think the best part is giving that to my father. It was not the easiest thing. Um, for him to go through all this. Yeah, wow. um, and th- I think that's the fruit of the, re- the, re- the rewards there.
0: And I, I imagine that it bonded the two of you in a deeper way as father and son, as fellow believers even spiritually speaking, uh, in a way that maybe you never had before growing up.
1: Yeah, I owe a lot to the film to giving me another perspective of my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, gr- growing up, I because of the film and of the Killing Fields, 1984,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and just the things he told me about his past, I always thought he was a peasant farmer. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he was always good around the house, you know, could fix anything up, good uh-huh. with his hands. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize how similar he was to me, mm-hmm. like as a this American-born
2: mm-hmm.
1: kid um, on the block. And so, you know, bat, he did everything similar. Had rock and roll as one of his yeah. favorite music categories. Um, and that, I, that to me is the most touching part
0: about Mm. it all. That's awesome. Tell, tell us briefly about your own coming to faith and how, uh, creating this film maybe was part of that path to, to becoming closer to God. And maybe did you feel the Lord's hand in your, um, uh, going, trying to create this documentary?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I give everything up to, every everything we've done with this film was just providential, oh, um, for sure, and I would have never done this if I, like I said before, never had mm-hmm. that moment in life um, where I went through this dark period of insomnia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I, because of that, I wake up every day thinking I have a second lease on life, mm-hmm. I Never thought I would get out of that sort of mess in that period of my life. I thought I was going to be like that forever Mm. in that sort of condition. Um, So I wake up thinking I have it's a miracle to wake up. Um, And in some ways, it makes me attack life with uh, much more intensity and knowing that I have more. Um, to do and i can risk more and be more bold about it and mm-hmm. i've gone through one travail in my life and i'm sure with any uncertainty or overcast again i can go through it again
0: it'll be an uh, example for future yes that's right and how the lord yeah. helped you here he can help you with this too uh,
1: yeah yeah
0: how, how is the film doing i know it won some awards and are you uh it's something that we can pray for i know personally myself because we're in contact uh, with the church and various other things that we've uh, communicated about uh, in the past, but um, is there uh, efforts to try to continue to promote it, putting it out on other platforms, uh, perhaps showing it at a limited um, viewing at theaters across the country or?
1: Yeah, last month we were shown all month wide um, between a collaboration between two film festivals in honor of the Asian American Pacific Islander month. So that was really neat. Um, and so next month, um, it will be shown locally in Washington DC on PBS for a day or two. So we're really happy about that one. Um, we're working on other film festivals and we'll see what comes up. Um, I think for this film itself, we still would like to do a longer long version, so much longer one. Um, to distribute around and maybe get it on a distribution we'll have to think about that Um, in terms of the vision and the entire like story itself one of my long range that i'm going to start conceptualizing soon is um, putting a museum actually out in that area that region now in cambodia we were actually given land by the border soldiers who lived there Um, They offered it to us. So they still remember us after, I think now it's almost three and a half years of filming later, and they still call up um, saying, hey, we got this for you. You guys coming back and stuff. That's
0: great. Wow.
1: And so we'd like to have, I'm I'm going to start sort of create mock-ups with somebody, hopefully. Um, But a museum out there that will help simulate, because you can't, these these jungles are still mined. It's still quite dangerous. So, really simulate what for anyone who visits what it's like to be a refugee in that circumstance, right? Mm-hmm. Through the vines and the mountains and the tough terrain, right? Um, and then bring things that are from out there as, as an exhibit and any archival we have.
0: That's awesome! Wow. Well, we will definitely uh, keep watching um, and praying for you on this uh, endeavor.
2: And Thank you. It's an incredible
0: story and. I've shared it and just in looking ahead to our time together tonight. um, Sorry I didn't go live, but hey, um, people will be able to see it on the flip side as soon as I uh, finish recording and all. Any last thoughts uh, um, that you have about, I I just think it's a great example. Um, I know I made the parallel with the Holocaust and I think you agree to that, that when people go through something that difficult, it is a knee jerk reaction to just try to, forget it, and start over, but it's so cathartic and therapeutic to go through that difficult process like your dad did as the Lord led him, and you slowly worked with him to open up, and, and I, I appreciate how you you did that with inspiring him to think about other people that wasn't about you. Um, it really speaks to the greater issue of, as, as Christians, believers, how we need to be more open and, and vulnerable about our difficult past—not uh, airing our dirty laundry and all the nitty-gritty details, but of uh, not p- pretending to be tough—and then we're all set because we're broken. Uh, not as much as obviously Cambodians and, and Jewish people who went through the Holocaust. We would never think about comparing ourselves with them, and I'm sure we'd agree with that. But any difficulty that we've had is—you know—you get through it by sharing it. it. It seems like you get stronger. I'm not yeah. sure if I'm. Uh, saying all this right but
1: uh, um, what are your thoughts yeah of- uh, for your viewers they should look up this uh, clip on YouTube from Rick Warren I think a couple of weeks ago mm. about him talking about him losing his son to suicide and this is probably the best things I've seen in years him, mm. him going through that and mm-hmm. Rick Warren essentially says that sometimes your ministry of pain your greatest pains will be your best ministries mm. um and he, he, I, there's this one quote he says, even in the broken, um, the broken garden, uh, the, even in the uh, even with broken trees in the garden of grace, broken trees bear fruit. Mm-hmm. Some a quote like something like that. Yeah. Um,
0: like like a plant, or once in a while you'll see a, a green shoot or something try to come out of a crack in a wall. Right. And I always think of that as maybe kind of like that. It's yeah. Like, you know, can't, life wants to still come out.
1: Yeah. Even and it's it's through our ugly and messy past that we find transformation, yeah. the best types of transformation.
0: Well, it gives God a chance to really uh, complete the redemption process. But if we keep if we keep right. a front, uh, thinking that's the thing to do, he's not able to... We're becoming a providence, as Oswald Chambers likes to say. We're, we're becoming our own God by stopping uh, something that he had allowed. That's why he says, come to me, you, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But if we don't come to him, uh, even in the way that we're talking about here, sharing our story, um, he can't finish that.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, become very, we've <laughs> become very stoic uh, yeah. in some ways. In so, our-
0: yeah, and that mixed with what we're finding today with almost the other extreme of um, narcissism in our culture and our society, you know, consumed with the self in a way that's not healthy this is certainly a healthy way to uh, come out of that. And, and there's always a balance uh, between stoicism and, and narcissism, isn't there, James? Where yeah. we share, but not too much, but enough that we begin to get healing, so. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on tonight. Uh, I, With a lot of guests, I, I offer to pray if I can do that for you and your family. Sure, thank your, you. And this continue project. your project. Your dad is still living. He's working.
1: still around. Yeah, he's still working you know, and alive. Um, and we're thinking about, you know, the, what's the next thing to take the story and tell it to, you know, the rest of the yeah. more audiences here.
0: And, and I'm sure he's on board with that now that he's seen what it's done for him, for you, and, and how successful the Lord's allowed it to be. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, Yes. And the heavy lifting is done. He doesn't have to tell his story as much anymore because yeah. we've recorded it all. That's cool. <laughs> well, let's pray. Thank you. Father,
0: thank you so much for this amazing privilege of talking with James about this story and uh, Lord we don't want to live in, a, in a, our box with our understanding and knowing the pain and the brokenness that other people have gone through uh, and certainly Lord this second killing fields uh, was just a tragedy but yet Lord you can bring redemption out of that uh, you can bring beauty of that And Lord, to continue to help James and his father and his family and the crew that he's working with, Uh, I pray that you would uh, uh, continue the energy that he feels that he he has uh, testified about, uh, that now there's more energy, that looking up every day, there's a new day, Lord, you brought him through so much, you brought his dad through so much. And I pray that the story would continue to to, um, have legs and heal other people who maybe want to bury that past and don't see the value of allowing it to come out in the open thank you father for our time together in jesus name amen Amen. god bless you brother we'll be in touch
1: thank you thank you you so much pastor you 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 too as well
0: Bye bye